You really think that people are going to be seduced by that? I think he knows what Rome is. Rome is the mob. You conjure magic for them and they'll be distracted. You take away their freedom and still their war. The beating heart of Rome is not the marble of the Senate. It's the sand of the Colosseum. You bring them death. And they will love him for it. Hello and welcome. Welcome and hello. This is Wait. You haven't seen? It's a show where we talk about movies and specifically, we talk about a movie at least one of us has never seen before. I'm your host, Travis, a.k.a. TV's Travis. This is episode 192, and our movie this week was 2000's Sword and Sandals epic Gladiator. And here to talk to me about it, because he had never seen it before, it's Norm. Or Tom, depending on who you ask. <laughs> How you doing? Oh, I'm doing great. Uh, thanks for having me on. This is... It's gonna be a lot of fun. I, I've been looking forward to this. Absolutely, yeah. We've we've gone round and round trying to. We talked a while back about it, and at the time, you were real busy with some stuff at work, and so it was kind of a well. Let's put a pin in it. We'll come back to it. And finally, uh, you were like, "Hey, things have cleared up. You wanna you wanna talk?" I'm like, "Yeah, absolutely." And then you mentioned you hadn't seen Gladiator, and I was like, "All right, well, that that's the choice. It's the only choice." So how how familiar were you with Gladiator, and how is it that you didn't see this movie? Uh, I knew it was a movie that was set more or less in the Coliseum. Uh, I hadn't seen it. Uh, I would have been 20, 21 at the time. Mm-hmm. So I was in college full time, working full time. And to be honest, this kind of movie wasn't necessarily at the top of my list to see. Um, historical style movies, not necessarily my thing. Okay. Um, I'm always down for a really long movie. I, I love Braveheart. I love Saving Private Ryan. I do like some historical stuff, but this the, like Gladiator stuff normally isn't on my radar. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, it's definitely a long movie. It's two and a half hours long. Uh, there is an extended cut that is two fifty. I think I've actually never seen that before. Um, I always forget that it exists until I hop on IMDb and I see like something talking about the extended cut or uh, if I watch, sometimes I'll watch YouTube like video essays where they'll break down movies. And there was one in particular that I saw recently that talked about Commodus and we'll talk about him as a character and everything. And it was referencing scenes that were from that extended cut. And I'm like, wait a minute, I haven't, I, I don't remember this scene and I've seen this movie a number of times. Um, so it's kind of funny. See, I saw this in a theater, but it wasn't your standard like multiplex. Um, I saw it in, 2000, but I saw it at the student free theater when I was going to college. They were running it. So it was a few months after it had been out. Um, and, and I fell in love right away. I, I don't flock to kind of gladiator Roman era stuff. However, period pieces are always to me really interesting. Um, because they just, there's a look about them and I know going into it that I'm not looking for historical, like, uh, intense historical accuracy. And so I'm looking for a good story, which is what you get here. There are some anachronisms. There are some issues with accuracy on some of the the stuff that goes on. 
but it's kind of like the Star Wars rule of, you know, is there sound in space? Well, no, but it's going to be boring to watch a movie set in space with no sound. So we're going to have sound. And I'm fine with that. So I very much enjoy this movie. I also was uh, a big and still am a big Ridley Scott uh, fan of his films. And so this came out and I was like, sure. Yeah. And it's got the guy from uh, Virtuosity in it. All right. You know, I I had seen L.A. Confidential. I like Russell Crowe. So I, I was all about that. Um, so first question I have for you. You sat down. You watched all two and a half hours of it. And twice. T- twice. So uh, mm-hmm. I, I have a feeling I know what the answer is going to be to this. But did you like it? Yeah, it was actually it was actually good. It was better, <laughs> it was better than I guess I didn't really have any expectations, but it was better than what I thought it was going to be considering the movie is what, 22 years old. Yep. You know, I wasn't sure how the uh, special effects were going to hold up. I didn't know if there's going to be a lot of like that crappy CGI that they tried to do late nineties, early two thousands. I'm glad that a lot of it was all that practical effect. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, no, I I enjoyed it. Uh, I don't know if I'll watch it again anytime soon. Uh, like I, I make it a habit of watching Saving Private Saving Private Ryan like probably once a year. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is not going to be on that list, but I'm not opposed to seeing it again. Sure. Okay. Now it did win um, five Oscars and a and a slew of awards. This was a big award winning film. This won Best Picture. It got Russell Crowe a Best Actor. Um, and oddly enough, it won Best Picture, but it didn't win anything for writing or directing which is pretty rare. Usually those kind of go together. You know, it's either the director or the screenplay will win along with a film that's best picture. And this one didn't, which is strange, but, but this was a very, critics were, were lukewarm to like favorable. Like it wasn't, it didn't blow the critics away necessarily, but they thought it was pretty good for the most part. I think Roger Ebert, if I remember right, kind of said it was pretty dumb. Um, But the, the Academy loved it and it did really well. Um, but I can understand sort of it not, if it, if this era period piece isn't really your bag, I can understand it not hitting that rotation like a saving private Ryan would. Um, and for me, I don't watch it every year or every, even every couple of years, but I've watched it several times because it's just, there's something about this very simple story of kind of vengeance and redemption from somebody who's, you know, he, he doesn't want the power he's given it, he's betrayed left for dead and he's going to get his revenge. It's a very simple story, but the characterizations that they do um, are compelling. You can really get behind this, uh, this gladiator and kind of everything that happens to him. He's not unlikable, which is great. Um, He's not sort of like, it's weird because he's kind of an anti-hero in a way. Like he's gruff, but he's but he's a good person, so it's easy to get behind Maximus. Um, and yeah, also helps. He has that, those. Oh, go ahead. He, he has those heroes hero qualities that you're really looking for. He's mm-hmm. trustworthy. He's reliable. He's uh, honorable, and yep. he's uh, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Loyal. Yes. He is so loyal to the king or to Caesar that, I mean, up until the very end, oh yeah, he, he literally had his back. Yep, and and on top of that, uh, you have a villain who is just vile and terrible at every turn, so it's easy to root against him too. 
Um, yeah, that's that's one of my early notes is Commodus is not easy to like, or he's easy to hate. <laughs> now, uh, like, he is just vile. Oh, yes. So, okay, first things first, we're going to get off the top of the head. Yes, these some of these people are, are based on actual uh, humans that lived in the era. Um, historical accuracy is wishy-washy. Like, they got some of the things kind of right, but things like... Um, Marcus Aurelius and Commodus actually ruled at the same time for a period. They had some overlapping rule where hmm. they were co-emperors for a couple of years before Marcus Aurelius died and Commodus took over. Um, Commodus didn't, did actually participate in um, gladiatorial games during his reign, but he also didn't die in the arena. He was actually killed by his wrestling partner, um, and his, in his home under a plot to, to assassinate him, which was kind of interesting. And the original script had the character of Maximus named the same. It was, uh, Commodus was killed by his wrestling partner named Narcissus. So okay. there's that kind of stuff, but like at the same, and, and Marcus Aurelius was sort of like he's portrayed here, but not entirely. Like he didn't want to just give Rome back to the people. Um, and com but Commodus was, by historical accounts, uh, not a great person. He had some problems. Um, he definitely... So they, they just sort of amplified certain things. Maximus is kind of a... He's not a real character. He's not a real person. He was a character, sort of an amalgamation of a few different accounts of things, but it fit this mm -hmm. story really well. So I just love all that. But let, the, the, the cast of this movie is unreal, and I forget how good it is every time I see it because I remember like Russell Crowe and Joaquin Phoenix... But then I forget all the other people that are in here. And uh, as I mentioned, Russell Crowe won the Academy Award the year for this movie. Um, and it's really funny because he's talked about in interviews where they started making this movie. They had about 20-something pages worth of script when they started making this movie. And most of what he and Ridley Scott came up with while making it was a lot of uh, improvisation and ad-libbing. Um, in the moment. Really? This doesn't, yeah. it didn't feel like there was any ad-libbing necessarily. It felt very scripted. So it was, like there was a script. It got rewritten several times. Uh, some of the dialogue um, would get changed around. Some of it was just terrible. Sometimes it was just go ahead and read it. Like supposedly Crow hated the line, I will have my vengeance in this life or the next, but he couldn't, mm -hmm. The, the story goes that he couldn't ad-lib anything that sounded better, so he ended up just doing it anyway. And that moment is so powerful in the movie that it works. Like, he's just, he brings that to it. But a lot of, a lot of things, the other one I loved was he was telling a story about his first day on set. And they shot things in kind of a chronological order, which is odd for a movie. That's no, not a normal thing to do. You don't normally shoot scene one first and move on. You kind of depending on how your scheduling is and what's available, you move things around. But the first day on set, he said, and I love this. This was a, a direct quote from him. He's like, I'm on set. I'm wearing, I'm, I'm dressed as a Roman soldier in full metal armor, so it's not comfortable. And Ridley Scott comes up to me. And the first thing he says is, okay, so here's what we're going to do. I'm going to shoot and you are going to look over and you're going to see a bird on the battlefield. And then you're going to watch the bird fly away and you're going to kind of follow its flight, and then that's going to bring your attention back to the battlefield. So he's like, 
All right, so, you know, he yells, action, and I do that, and I'm watching this, and I add a little bit of color here and there as I'm going along, and I do the thing, and, and, and the scene ends, and Ridley comes off to me, and he says, well, you and me are going to work really well together. <laughs> and that was kind of where it went from there. And I, I just like that story because I hear that, and I think, okay, now I can kind of buy that there was a lot of freedom for Russell Crowe to really bring something to this character, and he just embodies it so well. He plays the the hero, the the muscular good guy, very well in in pretty much all of his movies. You know, I I don't really see a Russell Crowe movie where he kind of plays the heavy and think, oh, I mean, he could have done better. <laughs> he he seems to actually put effort into all of his roles, no matter how big or small. And I really like that about about him in general. He really does. Whether he's playing somebody unhinged like Sid 6.7 in Virtuosity or the year before this movie was when he did The Insider and he was playing um, a real person, a whistleblower. And he'd actually put on a bunch of weight for that because he kind of, especially early on in his career, he had that sort of Christian Bale kind of yo-yo thing where he would put weight on and take weight off for roles. So he'd, he'd put on a bunch of weight and then had to lose it all for this role of Maximus. Um and it worked like he looked good. He didn't. It's funny because he didn't look ripped, but he looked like that kind of that kind of strength that comes with experience. Yeah, like he's like he doesn't actually work out, but because of what he does, mm-hmm. he's just naturally physically proportioned. He's not like uh, like three hundred where everybody has twelve pack abs <laughs> yep. and you know the hourglass waistline. Exactly. He actually looked like somebody would would look who is a general slash full-time soldier slash marching around all the time. I mean, you got to remember there's no cars, there's no planes. Yeah. I mean, you walk literally everywhere if you don't have a horse. Yep. And and, and you're going to be fit. Oh yeah, and his background uh, as a farmer too. He had that look to him, right? That mm-hmm. he looked yep. like that guy that's like today you'd meet him, he'd be like a stonemason. You know, the, that guy where you can yeah. tell they work with their hands all day when you shake their hand and it's just, it feels like you're getting, your hand's going to get crushed, but they're not, yeah. you're, because that real strength, that real, that, that kind of strength doesn't have the bodybuilder physique to it usually. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, he pulled that off and then it's just a, a gravitas, a weight that he brings to roles. And this was early 2000s, Russell Crowe was a lot more self-serious than he is now. And like, like now, if you, if you saw the most recent Thor movie and saw him as Zeus in Thor Love and Thunder, like he's just, that, that role is something that I don't think this era of Russell Crowe would have done. Certainly not the way that he did it, because it almost is like he's having more fun as he's gone on in his career. Yeah, I would agree with that. He, he really did seem to take himself a lot more seriously in his, in his actual, the roles that he chose. And mm-hmm. you look at some of the stuff he's done when he's older, like he plays that really heavy set uh, cop uh, from a movie a couple years ago. I can't think of it off the top of my head. Oh, the nice guys. Uh, yeah, the nice guys. Yeah, you know, he plays kind of that heavy, heavier. Yeah, he's and a lot of people don't like to do those roles that make him look doughy and soft, just because they want their, you know, they want to have that appearance of of a movie star. You know, right? They don't want to be. They don't want to be 60 pounds overweight like Sylvester Stallone when he's <laughs> trying to be the sheriff. <laughs> well, and that was uh, Crow at this time, too, because he had done like The Quick and the Dead and L.A. Confidential and um, 
Mystery Alaska, and he was always kind of this well-built, decent-looking guy. The insider he put weight on for, but he was playing a real person, so he got a little pudgy mm-hmm. for that. Um, but then he sort of started doing a lot more of that. There was a movie he made with um, Leo DiCaprio called Body of Lies, and he is playing yes. like a CIA guy. And what I loved about him in that movie is he put on a little bit of weight for it, but it was that kind of weight where he wanted to look almost like he'd been a, like a linebacker in, in high school and maybe played a little bit of football in college, and now he's he's lost that physique. He's just a little bit bigger than that, but he's still like, again, it's like he's got the fists of a plumber and he'd just be hitting you with concrete if he punched you. Yeah, and the athlete that retired and sat behind a desk. Exactly. So he's just got this like physicality to him that works. The way he moves as Maximus, um, some of that is that armor, right? It's going to make you move a certain way, but he just brings this physicality to it and his in his movements. He also um, apparently hurt hurt himself quite a bit making this movie. Like there were a lot of onset injuries. He broke bones in his foot, and I think what I hear he he tore like uh, bicep tendons, like painful stuff. Because I've broken bones I, in my foot, I believe it. and some of the notes that I had written down while watching this is kind of in the same vein as getting hurt because every time I I watch a movie that has a lot of horses and the horses are rolling over people and Mm -hmm. falling down and they're getting hit. I, I, you have to think that even, even though it's all stunt people, somebody's getting hurt because you don't have a 500 pound horse rolling on top of you. And you come, you know, and you come out unscathed. So I, I mean, even with the the sword fighting and and you look at a lot of those gladiators that had full face coverings and you can barely see out the eye holes. I mean, who are they swinging at? They're, right. they're swinging at what? In theory, they're swinging where they're supposed to be swinging. But how how good is that choreography? How good is that battle scene? Like yep. you think about the one with what was it, Titus? Mm-hmm. You know, he's got the full face mask and they're doing actual choreographed fighting and yeah. i just i mean i probably would have knocked him out just <laughs> by accident by swinging the sword yeah you know there were some accidental connections made that's just like i'm sorry i can't help it it's uh it's just gonna happen but yeah he it's just i can't say enough good things about russell crowe and he delivers these lines that could sound hokey the whole you know i will have my vengeance in this life or the next like doesn't really make a whole lot of sense but Sounds the like way a Batman line. it does kind of, doesn't it? But the way he delivers it and the look he gives the camera uh, or past the camera as he's, you know, he's staring down Commodus, you buy it. You're like, nope, as this guy's, I, I want no smoke from him at all. Like, I don't want nothing to do with him. And he's not, it's not like Russell Crowe's a big guy either. Um, he's not a tall, imposing figure. And you notice that when you see him in the Coliseum stuff standing next to Jaiman Hansu and Rolf Moeller. Uh, who were two of the other gladiators. One, I love Jaiman Hansu. I love him in everything I ever see him in. That guy is just, whether it's a small, he's a smallish role here, whether it was in like, uh, you know, he'll pop up in an MCU movie here or there, Blood Diamond, he's amazing in. Um, if you ever get a chance to see that, I highly recommend it. Uh, and he's about, I think he's like six one. And then Rolf Moller, who is a uh, German former bodybuilder and just a, mountain of a man and he's like yeah, six he's foot huge. five and he's standing there he's and he, huge. he's so big and he just he makes russell crowe look tiny 
because he's just standing. He's, I mean, he's like he's bigger than Arnold. He's like uh, kind of Lou Ferrigno sized. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Uh, and then also, um, you mentioned uh, was it uh, Tigris, um, who he fights the guy with the full face mask. Oh, that was Tigris. Is that what it is? Yeah, Tigris. So I had issues with some of the audio in this. It was very low and very mumbly mm-hmm. at at times. So I I actually thought they said Titus. Oh yeah. So I was like oh. That's that's real close, and so that's an easy one. It's uh, he was Tigris, yeah. um, okay. and he uh, he was played by Sven Ol Thorson, who's another one of those um, kind of physical actors that will show up in. Uh, he was in Mallrats um, as the the mall security guy, and he like he pops up and stuff all the time, yep. and uh, and he's yeah. Great. I I had to laugh. He was, I I mean I five years. They said it was what five years he had retired. Yep. And he looked like he had retired. He looked doughy. He did not look like, like he looked like he was put out to pasture. And this is kind of like a victory lap. It uh, Oh yeah, s- totally was. And honestly, like that works too. If you think about it, mm-hmm. this guy who had spent his entire life probably, or, or a, a big portion of his life as like a gladiator and fighting. And now he got to retire and not have to fight anymore. Yeah. You, you get soft. I mean, think of like a, a pri- I mean, a boxer. That isn't Mike Tyson. Uh, a few years what originally after they came retired. to mind for me was Ric Flair in wrestling. Like, oh, there you go. Dude's seventy and still wrestling, and he comes out and you're like, "Oh, dude, put the shirt on." <laughs> yeah, you know, it's it, your your heyday of of muscle is long gone. Yeah, no, nope, doesn't doesn't work anymore. But uh, yeah, those were just a couple of couple of smaller characters in those gladiator scenes. The few that you know kind of recurred uh, was in more than one battle scene. Um, that are just great. Like those three, uh, and that, that fight with Tigris was cool because here it is on the floor and you'd mentioned you, you were hoping you wouldn't see a lot of the, the early two thousands, late nineties CG that can really date a movie. And they didn't do that. There's composite shots, um, you know, blue screen stuff with the tigers. Cause you're not going to actually have a real tiger yeah. that close to your actor. Like no insurance nope. company is going to let that happen. Um, they did have, I think they had at least one tiger on the set for some shots, but they would always have a minimum of 15 feet of dis- distance. Um, and then they would composite in other stuff. So they would shoot the tigers on a blue screen and then put them in there coming out of the trap door or something like that. But that whole fight is so well done and choreographed. And it's such a cool fight with that extra background of those tigers all, and there's four of them coming from all different angles and you're watching like the guys trying to wrangle it. And just, if you think about being in that situation, I would hate to be one of those guys that had to wrangle one of those tigers. Cause you're holding onto a chain with your bare hands and there's a, you know, 500 pound murder tank on the other end of it with claws. And there's just, nowhere to go. There's literally nowhere to go. No, nowhere at all. And if that tiger decided to turn and go after you, it's over. You're done. You're not, you're not getting out of that. So, I really enjoyed that scene. That was a, and that's, it's a, it is a well choreographed fight too. It had, yeah. I, I liked the, the kind of storytelling of the fight itself and the way that things moved because you could tell, even though Tigris was, as you said, he was the aging retired fighter and he was a little bit doughier. He wasn't quite as uh, sharp as he used to be. You could, he still could fight. And he was, he was, definitely a match for Maximus. Maximus couldn't, after we had seen, we had kind of seen Maximus become like almost mythical in his fighting ability. 
uh, over the course of some of these battle scenes. And now here he is in this where it's like, nope, he's going toe to toe with somebody who can actually go toe to toe with him. So I like that. Yeah. I mean, he still looked like a tank. He still obviously knew how to fight. Mm -hmm. It was just that, you know, he probably didn't train appropriately for the battle. (laughs) No, not at all. No, because he, you know, like you said, victory lap, that's what he was going Mm -hmm. for. And he ended up getting stapled to the floor. Oh, which, man, that I can't, uh, the whole spike into the foot and then he gets knocked over. And I always forget because I, I, I always remember the, the spike end of that axe going into his foot. And I always forget when he gets knocked over that then after that is when he pulls that out of him. So when he fell over like that, that character couldn't move that foot. It was still stuck into the ground. Nope. Ugh. So. Yeah, that's. There, there's a couple things that were uh, pain-inducing. Like you look at some of those, some of those battles and some of those fights. Like the uh, so when uh, Maximus is being trotted out to be executed after Commodus turns, you know, and, and kills his father. Yeah, he grabs the sword by the blade. Yep, and then starts murdering people with it. And all I could think about is, dude, your fingers are absolutely gone, first of all, because if the sword is that sharp, you're not holding it by the blade. Right. And then he turned around and used that same sword and slashed across the guy's face, cutting the actual helmet and his face. Yep. Yeah. And and all I could think about was that, like, just taking a blade across a face, I mean, I can't imagine, unless it goes through your entire head, that it's going to kill you right away. No, no. Nobody died quickly. Um, except maybe the guy that got his head cut off. Uh, I mean, he did, right? Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, the, the double, the scissors, the yep. scissors, the, the double yeah. sword one. Um, oh, that execution scene, by the way. Uh, and I, this is one that I definitely forget every time, and then I'm reminded when I watch it because it's like just long enough. Um, is the guy that's going to execute him is an actor I love, Tony Karan. He has been in. He was in Blade Two. He was in um, the Underworld series after a fashion as Marcus. He was also in some episodes of Doctor Who playing uh, Vincent Van Gogh. Um, he he's great. He's a Scottish actor, fiery red hair, amazing accent that you know he didn't get to use in this movie at all. But this is like early for him, and I completely forgot he's in it. And I just had one of those like silly like fanboy moments where I'm like that's Tony Karan. That's awesome is this throwaway moment. Um, so yeah, I just, I had to point that out because I, I love seeing actors in like early stage roles like that where here's an, here's a role where he doesn't get to speak at all. And, you know, just, he got to be, but he got to be in that movie. So. Yeah. Yeah, I like, I, I, I'm kind of the same way. I, I like watching older movies just because you, you see actors that uh, at the time where nobody's are up and coming. Yep. Who are now like, you know, just absolute, just sellers. Like, you, like they can't do any wrong. Yeah, um, I mean, Tony Karan's got I, uh, what 121 acting credits. Holy crap! So, like, dude works and does a lot of television stuff. He was in episodes of like The Flash, The Calling, um, SEAL Team, Ray Donovan for a while. Um, He's done voice work, all this kind of stuff, and here he is in this movie, credited as Assassin Number One. So, well, somebody's got to be assassin number one. Yeah, that's true. Uh, so I, I just I got a kick out of that. Um, 
we haven't spoken about uh, Joaquin Phoenix yet, and I feel like that's one we got to because his performance as Commodus is so incredibly good, and it's such a terrible character. Like, you just hate him from the moment, like, the moment you see him, he is unlikable, and he remains that all the way through, and Joaquin Phoenix just crushes it. Mm-hmm. He started out bad, uh, starting with the armored stagecoach to the battlefield, you know, talking with his sister in, in, in you know, in the yep. carriage. Yeah, yeah. And she's kind of goofing around. She's kind of smiling. You know, they seem like true brother and sister. And then you can just kind of see him uh, when he greets Maximus. You know, he disdains him. He just absolutely loathes him. But he gives him a cheek, calls him brother. Mm-hmm. And then I really feel like after... The moment he was told he's not going to be uh, emperor, Caesar, king, whatever. As soon as he's told that, he becomes instantly unhinged, kills his dad. And then for the rest of the movie, he's trying to, for the lack of better words, make it with his sister and yep. and just kill everybody. And he, it, I, I feel like it, it almost went to a drastic from from a, a mid-leveling bad guy to Joker in in one scene. Kind of, yeah. Yeah. You're not you're not that far off. I mean, Commodus is definitely being portrayed as a character who has like this really skewed outlook on life. And this like weird uh kind of need for uh affection or or um appreciation from his family and love of his family. And so he didn't get that from his father and it's his feelings towards his sister are not reciprocated in the way that he thinks they should be. And so like a lot of stuff is skewed for him like that. And you can also get this feel like he really enjoyed the privileges of being the emperor's son and kind of growing up in this life of luxury. And um, so he has that kind of going for him. Uh, in in his favor of like, oh, I grew up in luxury and all that, but it made him very spoiled, very petulant. Uh, he is quick to anger. Uh, if you know, and that was one thing that you really notice is like he he flips so quickly to these like screaming fits and getting upset at other people for perceived uh, slights. Um, yeah, on on like out of nowhere. One of the most one of the interesting things or one of the more interesting things that he said um that really struck me when he was talking to uh lucilla kind of uh, probably three quarters of the way through the movie it's just them up in the chambers and he's talking about how they're talking about how maximus you know he's got to go all that fun stuff but he says uh if they don't respect me how will they ever love me yep and that really struck me because no, a, they fear him. They, they you know, the, nobody loves him. You know, his sister doesn't. Nope. The Senate doesn't. Everybody sees him as this. I mean, in my opinion, I think everybody sees him as almost like a tyrant, and he is so, he's so looking for everybody else's love. Like he, he's just so needy, because his father literally berates him without question 
every chance he gets. Like he tells him to his face right before he dies that he's just, he's a failure. You know, Maximus is, is, is going to be Caesar. He's going to be emperor until, you know, or he's going to be given the power to make it as it should be. Mm-hmm. And, and continues to insult Commodus. Yeah. He, it's his father realized that he's not a moral man, but there's also like a cool flip side to that, which is Marcus Aurelius coming to the realization that his faults as a son are Marcus's failures in his, in being a father that like Marcus Aurelius didn't do a good enough job raising him. And he, he helped create what Commodus became, but he can't abide by what Commodus has become and sort of the virtues that Commodus looks at and looks, looks for and kind of is strong in are just not the types of things that uh, are good for rule because Again, he grew up in that luxury. He he grew up with this ability to have whatever he wanted, and so it made him. I don't want to say soft, but what it made him was like his uh, ambition and his conniving and his backstabbing ways kind of grew out of that because he never got a lot of love growing up, and so you know he doesn't get that type of recognition. He looks for it in other places, and he learns how to do what he's doing now. He can read people very well. And that's one of the things that Commodus is great at is he understands people. And by extension, he understands the general populace and what they need in order to satiate them. That's why he does. That's why he wants to. I mean, the first thing he says to his father is I'm going to sacrifice a hundred bulls in your honor because that's the, it's that, that pomp and circumstance and that sort of pageantry that is a big thing for him. He's always dressed in, uh, in his finements and he's always kind of putting on that appearance. Um, and that's sort of a normal thing for him. So it's like the pageantry of sacrificing a hundred bulls or having the gladiatorial games, which it's only mentioned in passing, but, um, Marcus Aurelius had kind of shut down the gladiators in Rome. And so, Commodus to honor his father brings back the games that he had shut down, but Commodus knows that the people are going to love it. And it's a, that opening clip that I played where the, the senators are talking and the one Senator who has no love for Commodus whatsoever, he's like, but the boy is clever. I mean, he clearly knows how to, how to get the will of the people and keeping the will of the people. And by an extension, that Praetorian guard and that army and those lower class help keep him in power because now he becomes kind of put on a pedestal. And if something were to happen to him, the people might revolt. So it's pretty slick that way. I mean, he's, he's not dumb at all, which I think makes him both more evil and more compelling because it'd be easy if he was kind of a uh, dumb or clueless type of character, but he's not, he's just yeah bad. I, I feel like many times, in, in lesser movies, you get that same character, but more of a bumbling uh, leader who has a second in command that is more of the stri- strategist, strategist. Yeah. Yep. Or whatever that word is. <laughs> and, and, and the, you know, the person that's in charge is, is that, that main bad guy is generally a little less, less clever, you know, and gets duped. And, and here communist doesn't get duped. He just gets out, out, out muscled out like, Max's heart is so hell bent on getting revenge and killing him that I mean he's literally dead walking and still manages to to best him. Yeah. That's a good way to put it though. You're right. A lot of times that 
this type of character are going to be sort of this that that sniveling whiny character will end up somehow not having the power that we think they do and in this case like the 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 easy way that could have been is the senator falco the one that's always kind of in his ear and telling him stuff to do he would be the real one right he'd be the one kind of yeah. moving all the chess pieces and in this case no it's still commodus falco is there but falco is like a, a yes man and sort of on his side and trying to get him to do um, trying to help him to do the things he wants, but it's all Commodus. Commodus is, is running the show. Um, and I like that because, again, it just makes him more compelling and it makes him a more interesting character, especially uh, opposed to Maximus. And and that part of, that part of Commodus's um, personality is really portrayed and set in place uh, when he is back in the the gathering place for the senators and he's got the sword and he's spinning the sword mm-hmm. he's spinning the sword he, you know he really at that moment takes charge over everything like it is now his game it is yep. now his it is his world and everybody else is just a player in it yeah uh, and that i think that that scene really conveyed that he commanded the attention of everybody uh, whether it was through respect, but mostly fear. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that scene really, really got that point. Yeah. And he was never afraid to make threats either to anybody. It didn't matter who yeah. it was, um, which again is not something like normally, again, those, those kind of whiny, that character that has those moments like he had right after that scene where he's, he's whining and complaining to Lucilla about how the senators don't respect him and they don't love him and, and all this kind of stuff. But this is coming off the heels of him basically telling Senator Gracchus, like, shut up or I'm going to make you, I'm going to give you the plague, essentially. Like, you know, yep. you you shut your mouth or I will kill you type of thing. And it's this open threat at on the Senate floor. And so it's like, yeah, he's he's got these two sides to him. He's afraid of the dark, but he is going to put out put all the pieces in motion and it's great and there's a reason why he was he should it's hard to say he should have won the oscar for best supporting actor because that year 2000 so this was the 2001 academy awards for the 2000 year and here were the nominees that year so you had joaquin phoenix for this movie albert finney for aaron brockovich willem dafoe for shadow of the vampire Jeff Bridges for The Contender, and Benicio Del Toro for Traffic. And Benicio Del Toro ended up winning for Traffic. That's a really good... I saw... So I saw Traffic. I've seen The Contender. I've seen Shadow of the Vampire. Brockovich is the only one I haven't seen, but it's Albert Finney, so there's no way that he was bad in that at all. No, it was, um, it was actually a good movie, I thought. So that's a, that's a hell of a, a slew of actors uh, for Phoenix. And he was still... He wasn't a newcomer by any stretch, but he didn't have uh, at that time kind of the weight that he has now. He was still relatively early in sort of his his real career, uh, kind of kind of taking hold. Um, and to be up for a best supporting actor at that point is pretty impressive. Yeah, and and I'll be honest, I'll watch Joaquin Phoenix in anything he he does. I adore him as an actor i think he i think he's another one kind of like russell crowe who puts everything he has into his character yep um and i think he's only 
you know, as a lot of actors do with more experience and more time and age, I think he, he is doing, you know, I, I don't know what you thought about his Joker, but I loved it. That movie. Like, I thought he went all he, in. He is amazing in it. That movie can be rough because it's such a, uh, such a downer a mental, of a movie to watch. It's like, a mental kick. Yeah. yeah. It's not, it's not easy subject matter. It's like, and I mentioned this a couple of years ago when I saw Monster for the first time. Charlize Theron in Monster is phenomenal. She earned her Academy Award. She earned all the praise she got for that movie. That movie is amazing. I don't know if I can ever watch Monster again because it's such a kick in the teeth of a movie. But she's so good in it, and I'm so glad that I saw it. I would probably watch Joker again. Um, but it's not the type of thing that I'm going to run out and be like, ah, you know, I need a movie tonight. I'll, I'll throw on Joker. Like I got to be in the right mindset for it because of like just what it is, but he's so good. Yeah. Yeah, And I would agree. It almost feels like a Halloween movie, like a, like a, a movie that is more suited as like, I almost feel it's bordering on horror movie. It's that psychological, uh, stuff that they do in it and yeah. the unreliable narrator and the fact that everything's being told from his point of view. So you're not entirely sure how much of it is real versus how much of it is what he remembers and wants to remember. And it fits the character perfectly. I really think it does. Um, the, for those that didn't like it, I get it. I completely do. Um, and a lot of people took the wrong messages from it. That happens all the time in movies, whether it's Joker or fight club or name your movie. There's somebody that's, misinterpreted something um but it's very very well done and very compelling and his performance is good in it and and Joaquin Phoenix is is that that method type of actor um where it can almost become too much at times like if you remember his performance arts thing her performance art thing he did a few years ago where he he stayed in that character um for like a year he he grew the, the big one beard that they did the fake they did like him and Casey Affleck did that fake documentary or whatever. Yeah. Yep. Where he pretended to lose his mind. Yeah, exactly. Like it's yeah. dedication. Don't get me wrong. But at the same time, like, man, like, I, I would, I feel like that would get tiring to be around that, that type of a person all the time. I don't know. It's hard to say. I don't, I don't know Joaquin Phoenix enough. I, I know that what I, when I see him on, on film, He's compelling, and I'll watch him in just about anything because he's just mm -hmm. he's always bringing something to the table. Uh, whether it's Gladiator, Eight Millimeter is a movie I remember him in, where he was playing. I think his character's name was like Johnny California. He's great in that. Uh, the movie Signs was, is probably one of my favorites with with him. Yeah, uh, he's Signs very good in that. Like he is great in that. The movie itself, uh, I, I flip flop on, but he's good in it. Um, you know, you mentioned Joker, but he's just, he's one of those actors that just always brings something. It's like Russell mm -hmm. Crowe. Russell Crowe always brings something. And there's, Crowe is also kind of method, but not quite, I don't feel like to the, to the level that Phoenix can get. Cause I did hear. Yeah. It's like he leaves it, he leaves it at the office and doesn't take it home with him. Yeah. Um, like I did hear some stories from the making of Joker where, he wanted to do some of the fight choreography improved because he felt like that would be more like what his character would do. And I, I heard that and I'm just thinking like, no, no, you, you, you don't do that. Cause that's how people get hurt. 
Like, yeah, the only time I've ever heard of any kind of a fight scene where there was improvis- improvisation done was a Donnie Yen movie, but it was Donnie Yen and his sparring partner that were going to improv a fight where they had it blocked out to know what they wanted to do, but they weren't just going to, they weren't going to choreograph the whole thing. They would just kind of spar and go from there. That is fine because that's just two people and they both know what they're getting into. But this is an untrained stunt performer in Joaquin Phoenix, bringing that to a movie with your stunt performers. I was like, "Eh, okay, that's, that's towing. That's getting close to like crossing that line of like now your method acting is affecting other people. That's dangerous. It's, yes. I mean, it's so easy to break an arm or a leg or if you punch somebody the wrong way and it hits them in the neck is different than hitting them in the shoulder or the head. Yep. It's like you yep. just don't know. But, oh, I mean, just him, her, he's great in that. Uh, the Master is another performance of his. And, and this one, I mean, this is a phenomenal performance out of Joaquin Phoenix. I was... Yeah, I, I I really liked him as as Commodus. Mm-hmm. I I really feel like Commodus would have been I don't know if scarier is the right word. Uh more uh demonic, more more bigger of a character if he didn't look like he was ready to cry every other scene. Like yeah, he, he would very emotional, and 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 that's something that can happen with mental illness, obviously. Mm-hmm. But I mean, it was just like he had that very whispery talk where he was almost like he was trying to hold back sobs, and I just I think some of those conversations that he had with like his sister, like with Lucilla, and and with some of the senators and stuff, and just like showing passion, but without coming that close to crying. I think would have made him a stronger character. I understand why he was that emotional all mm-hmm. the time, but I just felt like it was almost, almost a little too much. Well, it would have that definitely not doing that would have made it more like physic physically demonstrable. Um, mm-hmm. But I do think that part of what it was that worked, <coughs> pardon me, is his character. If you notice, he's always got like real dark circles around his eyes. And you kind of have this idea that like he doesn't sleep much. And so I feel like that plays into it, right? Like the character Commodus doesn't sleep a whole lot. And so he's always wound up too tight and he's on edge and he's ready to snap at any moment. And that can manifest itself in him yelling, am I not merciful? Which by the way, was an ad lib. The the yelling of that line was that uh, I believe that, yeah. that felt very raw. And Connie Nielsen's reaction to it was also very raw because he's screaming in her face. Um, but like that type of thing. But at the same time, it can also manifest itself in like you're going to break down at any moment and you might completely snap and just start sobbing because you just you can't contain, you can't control what's going on. And I feel like if you're going to have an, an opposition to Maximus, who is incredibly stoic and able to really, really have control of himself at all all times that was a good way to go about it whereas maximus is always in control commodus is on the on the razor's edge of losing that control at any second and you don't know when it's going to happen or how it's going to happen he might flip out 
and scream at somebody or there's another deleted scene where he goes down into an arc, uh, like a basement somewhere and they have a bunch of statues and busts and one of them is of his father and he goes to it and he's looking at it and he just grabs a sword and starts hacking away at the at the statue and then after he does that a few times he kind of drops the sword and sort of grabs like the back of the head of the statue like it's his father and is embracing it and starts kind of crying and it's that same thing where he's he's teetering on that edge of like you don't know what he's going to do at any moment he might start crying but in the middle of crying, he might pull a knife and try to stab you. And that's what made him scary for me, was that just never quite knowing what's going to happen moment to moment. Yeah, and that makes sense. I mean, it does, it, it makes him more unhinged, mm-hmm. less in control, which is, I mean, I guess ultimately what his character was, you know, and, yeah. and maybe it wouldn't have worked if he didn't, wasn't on that brink half the time. Um, yeah, and I, I I feel like the most powerful aspect of of that you know kind of going back on myself the most powerful aspect of that uh, hysteria is when he is yelling at his sister you know mm-hmm. am I not merciful because he's talking about stealing her son and putting her out and killing her if she even so much as as looks at him again you know and it's like. First of all, A, that's not merciful. <laughs> that's not even close to merciful. Uh, but also B, you know, that really shows that he really went off the deep end because in theory, she is the person that he loves the most. Yeah. Um, and I and I think, and that kind of when you're talking about him not sleeping, I didn't notice the bags under, you know, the dark circles under his eyes. Mm-hmm. But that would explain when he is getting really touchy-feely with Lucilla where he kind of lays her on the bed and he lays next to her like I don't like I don't know if she dosed him or what but he was out like like a light yeah he literally within three seconds was just flatline sleeping yep and I thought that was very very weird because I don't know anybody that would just fall asleep like that but if you're comfortable, you haven't slept in three, four, five, six, seven days. You lay down with the person that you're comfortable with. Yep. You're going to... You're done. Yep, you're out. Exhaustion. Uh, Yeah, and that that unhinged nature and that that question of like what he's going to do from moment to moment also makes all of his interactions with um, Lucius that much more kind of frightening, right? Because he sort of... He looks at the boy which is his nephew and he looks at him with uh with a bit of reverence and he he likes the kid but and there's that moment where he's watching him sleep that he's just it's like it's creepy because he's watching him but he's watching him sleep and it's not in a creepy fashion where like you know he's gonna like pedophile type thing it's not that it's just this like this kid has the love and the affection that i don't and you know he kind of envies him a little bit for that and then later on when he's, you know, he's messing around with them and they're, they start sword fighting. And when, when Lucius says, you know, I'm Maximus, the savior of Rome. And there's that split second where you think, oh no, is he going to kill this kid? Like just for saying that, like you don't know. And that's what makes Commodus such a scary character is like nobody's safe at any point around him. Um, I honestly so. think that if, if Lucius hadn't been related to him and it was just a random kid. Oh, 
that 100%. he you know was joking around with, that kid would have been a, a, a on a skewer, mm-hmm. right quick. You know, yeah. um, I think the only reason he doesn't flip out on him is because it is his his nephew, and you know, I, I feel like he is very fatherly, like he has taken on the father role of Lucius. Yeah, inadvertently. That's what he wants to asserts himself. Yeah, he wants that, and he wants that admiration from someone. And so he's not getting. He didn't get it from his dad. He's not getting it from his sister. Maybe he'll get it from his nephew if he can kind of take him under his wing a little bit. Um, And then you know they're having a good time chatting when when uh, Lucilla shows back up, and that scene where he does the whole um, busy little bee speech. That is such a chilling scene where he's holding eye contact with her the whole time. Meanwhile, you got Lucius sitting there like, uh, what's going on here? Like that kid, that kid acted so well in that scene because here's, he's watching his mom slowly breaking down and he's seeing his uncle who's telling the story, but he's done talking to the kid. Like at that point, Commodus doesn't even realize that kid is still sitting there. He is just staring a hole through his sister and telling her that he knows what she has been up to and he is going to put a stop to it. And it's such a chilling moment in performance. That's what got him, in my opinion, the the nomination for Best Supporting Actor is that scene. He's just so good in that. And again, uh, he's on the verge of tears kind of throughout the whole thing. And that whispery thing that he did, which Richard Harris did, some of that too um, in his performance as Marcus Aurelius. Now he did it because he was an old man who was dying. And so it worked. He had that kind of just raspy whispery voice to him. Like, like he was the life force was slowly leaving him. And it's almost like Commodus kind of tried to emulate that a little bit in the way that he spoke to certain people. Again, still trying to get his father's favor, even after his father had died. Um, and Richard Harris, we haven't really talked about a whole lot, but oh, I love him in this. I, 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 I like Marcus Aurelius in those opening scenes so much, and it's all Richard Harris. And this was pre-Harry uh, Potter, so he wasn't Dumbledore yet. Um, mm-hmm. and, but he just he has this like world weariness about him. And this like, oh man, I've I've done so much, and how much of it was any good? Like this, this man at the end looking back over his life, yeah, it's a very much that opening series of scenes with him. He's very much end of life reflective, very much. I regret doing some things. I don't regret doing other things. I've lived a good life, but I there's still more I would like to do, uh, you know, i.e. fixing fixing Rome. Yeah, you know, he wants to turn it back into the Republic that it should be versus what it has turned into. Yeah. Yep. And that, again, it's not a historical accurate, uh, historically accurate version of Marcus Aurelius. Like there's some differences, but to serve the story that they were telling, he's a, he's a very compelling character. And Richard Harris is just, Richard Harris was such a cool screen presence because he could be at this stage, he was very grandfatherly and that worked so well. That's why he made such a great Dumbledore in those early movies for Harry Potter was because he just had this feeling of like, you just trusted him. And so there was, and yet I've seen him play characters um, in uh, something like uh, was it um, Unforgiven? I think where he's just he's 
English Bob, and he's he's bad. Like he's a he's a bad dude. He's really good at playing both of those. Um, but I just I loved him in this, and and it's you know sad that he didn't last very long. He he only died a couple of years later. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he, and, he was. I thought he was very good for the short amount of screen time he had. He he very much. This he was the the focal point of the scene. I yeah, mean, essentially, he's well, very much the the center point of the opening story and like this is a two and a half hour movie he's in it for less than half uh, half an hour of the runtime and yet i will always remember him in this movie in those scenes they were very impactful scenes um so yeah i i, I loved all that he and russell crowe actually formed a really good friendship uh while they were making the movie and they stayed good friends for the the next couple of years until he passed away um which i thought was really cool the other character that Russell Crowe had a lot of scenes with who didn't form a great friendship was Oliver Reed uh, as Proximo. Um, those two butted heads. Like, they didn't get along very well. Really? Which is... It kind of works for their scenes because they're sort of... They're not super antagonistic towards each other as characters, but there's like this... This... Uh, it's like It's like two... Um, two bulls like circling each other all the time, right? Like they're, there's always this mo like they both have their chest kind of puffed out. They're, they're go, they're both going to be sort of the big man in the room or trying to be all the time. Um, and, and so a little bit of animosity between the actors probably helped that, but it also, I'm sure didn't help that it's Oliver Reed. And most likely he was drinking all the time anyway, because that's just what he did. Sadly, he passed away while making the movie. Um, which I don't know if you noticed the final scenes with him, how they had to composite him in. Um, if it looked oh, a little bit off. Yeah, he... So Oliver Reed actually passed away three weeks before finishing filming. And hmm. they had to rewrite parts of the end of the script to get around that because originally he was supposed to um, actually fight uh, Maximus in the arena. Um, that was going to be part of it was Commodus would make Proximo and Maximus fight each other um, as part of the punishment before, I think before Commodus fought him was what it was supposed to be. Um, also, the very end where Juba, um, Jaiman Hansu, buries the little figurines, that was originally going to be Proximo doing that. Oh. Um, so they had to, they used a body double and... Um, some composites of uh, of previously used shots in order to have Oliver Reed in those moments. So if you okay. if you if when you do watch it again, those scenes where the Praetorians are coming to his house uh, to get Maximus when Maximus is making his escape, watch those. You'll be able to you'll be able to tell that they're that they did that. Um, but it it worked really well. Like they did a great job of hiding it without overdoing the CG stuff. Yeah, I didn't notice. And to be honest, I thought it was very weird that he stood there holding his freedom sword mm -hmm. while six people stabbed him in the back. And yeah. that would make sense if that's a body double because he can't turn around to fight because he's literally dead. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I they they definitely had to make some changes to that. And it's unfortunate because like Oliver Reed is another one of those actors who's just like a presence. Like uh -huh. Proximo is a great presence in the first three quarters of this movie. And when you know that Oliver Reed passed away while filming it, it kind of makes sense why he just sort of disappears. 
and they yeah, kill him at the end. Like and the, like, yeah. Because he had more, I, I, there was more for him to do. I had to laugh when, when Maximus was there in chains and they're, you know, picking out who to sell. Proximo sounds so much like Optimus Prime, like the voice <laughs> and the, I, I had to stop and I actually looked it up because I, I was, I can't think of the guy's name. Oh, you were thinking it was Peter up. Cullen? Yeah, I'm like, <laughs> I didn't think Peter Cullen was in this, but it was, and I rewound it and it, and it, no, it was, it was proximal. He sounded very much like Optimus Prime and it very, it threw me off for a second. He had a little bit of that. Oliver Reed just had this great presence about him on screen. It's a bummer that he had such, uh, so much trouble with alcohol because he was a, notoriously heavy drinker and uh to the point where at this stage in his career and these were some fun little tidbits where apparently he he felt like it was beneath him to read for a part at this at this point um and he was working on another movie and uh the director of that was like no what you need to do is you need to go and you need to read for this part and you're working with me, so they're not going to think that you're drinking as much as you actually are. So you might actually get hired for it, but you need to go and read for it. And if he asks you to read again, read again. It doesn't matter. You got a chance to work with Ridley Scott on a on a historical epic. Like, go do that. And so he did, and he gets cast for it. Um, and <laughs> it, it worked out really well. But he, like, initially didn't want to do it at all because he just That's felt— he just felt like he had a he had a higher opinion of himself at that and the the basically the director was like you're at the tail end of your career you need something like this right now go read go do you know put your ego aside and go do it and he's good he's really good in there he's got that again that kind of like Marcus Aurelius where he's he's at the end of his life and he sort of knows it but he hasn't given up yet like Marcus Aurelius absolutely knew he was dying and he didn't have a whole lot of time left, and he was really reflecting on his legacy. Proximo is like, Pro- Proximo is Ric Flair, right? He's He is older. He's retired from active competition, but he kind of still has the feeling like he can do it, and he has very distinct feelings about... Uh, making money and what can make him money and how good he is as an entertainer. And that's what he views himself as. He knows he's an entertainer. Yeah. The whole, the whole, the, I wasn't the best fighter. I just knew how to work the crowd essentially is what he said is, is how he managed to get his freedom. And he was very much, uh, almost like he, he gave his life to that. Even after he got his freedom back, he, he gave up the rest of his life to stay in that arena to, to almost open up like his own fight shop for lack of better words, his own, you know, gladiator arena, mm-hmm. you know, so yeah. he, he went from being the slave to the slave owner, which I, I think is a very interesting jo- job transition, I guess. <laughs> yeah. It's also kind of all he knew, right? Like that's the life that he knows. So he was going to stay involved in it, but now he can be on the other side of it. And, you know, because he starts off real gruff and he doesn't have, like, you don't feel as though he has much of a, of a heart into what he's doing. But then he gets the, the men, he starts to train them before that first fight when he gives his little pep talk 
and it's almost like okay no he he while he views these are all slaves these are his property at the same time he understands what they're about to go through and in a way he sort of envies them because he doesn't get that cheer and that that rush of adrenaline from you know thousands of people cheering you on as you do something um he doesn't get that anymore he's got to live that vicariously through his fighters and then um you know you see him as he goes he and maximus do kind of bond a little bit and there's a there's a respect between the two of them um and i love the scene where he's explaining how he won his freedom and he talks about marcus aurelius and how he touched him on the shoulder and then he was free and just that reaction from maximus where he's like you knew him and he goes i didn't say i knew him i said he touched me on the shoulder like that was his brush with greatness was mm -hmm. he was in the presence of the emperor here's maximus who he has no idea at this point even uh who maximus is uh and and maximus is like sitting here thinking touched you on the shoulder like i used to drink with that guy you know we were we were friends i was friends with marcus aurelius and it's just a really cool scene i really enjoyed that a lot i just yeah it's, it it's another really great performance from a a cast of people giving great performances uh just up and yeah. down <clears throat> yeah i don't know who you know i i don't recall anybody in in throughout the movie giving any type of half-assed dialogue reading of any type no you know every sword swing looked like it was meant to to hurt every yep. you know everything looked good it looked like it was uh, a good uh a good filming of a movie for lack of better words you know nobody yeah. nobody half-assed it you know everybody had i, I guess the buy-in everybody had the buy-in is what i'm looking for. yeah there you go um and then connie nielsen as lucilla we've talked about her a few times like the character um but we haven't really talked about her performance she's great and and connie nielsen whether it, she's playing uh in like wonder woman uh she was great in there she was fantastic in a movie that I love that very few people have seen called Basic um, from a couple of years after is that this. The, like, is that the, uh, the basic training, the girls in basic, or the women in, in the military basic? Or is no, that nope. Uh, it's John Travolta and Sam Jackson um, from 2003. It's set in Panama, um, and it's kind of a Rashomon-style story where you're getting you're hearing about what happened from everybody after the fact. Um, John Travolta is a DEA uh, investigator, and there was um, an, a training accident on a military base in Panama, and oh, she's yeah, in yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. And she's so good in that. She's the, like, um, not JAG, but sort of like what JAG is for the Army. Some um, kind of lawyer. Yeah. yeah. And she's just really, really good in it. And I had seen that shortly after seeing this, and I was like, "Oh, she was in Gladiator. Cool." I'll, you know, and and I was blown away. Like she just, she's good. She's really good. And apparently was a uh, uh, a source of historical information on the movie because she's a history buff. Hmm. So I thought that was kind of neat. But she was um, very compelling. I liked how there was a 
romantic tension between Lucilla and Maximus from their past, but we never got the full story of exactly what happened, which is, mm-hmm. I like. I don't necessarily need to know what happened between them, but something happened. They were close once, and they're not anymore, but there isn't like, there's no vitriol between them um, necessarily. It's Maximus like is, he was. It was almost like he was sent off as they were dating or something, you know what I mean? Like they were mm-hmm. kind of together and then he was sent off to do something and then he met his wife, you know? And yeah. And like, there's, there's no, there's no story about how he met his wife. There's no story about how, you know, obviously he grew up with Commodus yep. and Marcus and, and that whole family, obviously, cause they refer to him as family and brothers and, and I am your father, you know? And so, having that connection with her growing up and then becoming adults would make sense. Yeah. But what happens when he left, how did he meet his wife? Like, I feel like that could almost be a story in and of itself. Yeah. Where was the, where was the disconnect between them? Because there was a coldness from Maximus Mm -hmm. towards her. So she did something to him that hurt him, but we don't know exactly what. And she has never, She's moved on. She had a husband. She had a child, all of that. Her husband is dead now. But she never, like, stopped caring for him type of thing. It was interesting. And and I like that they didn't overly force that. Um, Like, they have a kiss, sure. Uh, but that's more or less, like, I don't know. That didn't feel... It didn't feel out of place. And I think that her character, too, is she feels trapped in this situation because she knows what her brother is and who her brother is. And she, she can't get out of it. She's stuck there now. And so there's another deleted scene that has her and a couple of the senators talking about what's going on that I kind of wish had been kept in the movie only. They, they sort of end up reusing parts of it in other scenes, but there's a conversation going on where the senators are kind of saying like, well, He's not really doing anything wrong yet. He's just sort of a dick and nobody likes him, but the people like him. And she's like, yeah, but he started selling the grain reserves. Like, because they say, how is he financing? How is he paying for these games? These games are expensive. And she goes, oh, he's selling the grain reserves. Like, the people love the games now, but they're going to be starving in two years type of thing. Like, interesting information that would have kind of, but, but it also, at the same time, like, all that does is keep hammering home how bad of a person Commodus is. So they cut it for pacing. It really pacing. wouldn't serve much. Yeah. yeah. They cut it for pacing, but it just like reinforces that he's he's really doing all sorts of terrible stuff. Um, but it was just a, it was a well-acted scene between her and Gracchus and Gaius. Um, Gracchus, who's played by Derek Jacoby, and he's awesome. I love him. He was the... He's the one at the beginning of this episode where uh, he says, you know, the he will bring them death and they will love him for it. Uh, he's got that great voice to him. He actually played uh, Claudius in an old TV series uh, of I, Claudius. So he's he's done some of this Roman stuff before. Hmm. Um, but, yeah, uh, I, I just I, I love Connie Nielsen. I love seeing her in anything and in this um I also liked the because she is uh, Dutch, I believe, um, and she was 
in her middle 30s, I don't know how much American English acting she had done prior to this, but I liked her accent. Uh, and like just there was something about the way she spoke in this movie that that I really liked. Um, well, I guess she had done a couple things. She had been in The Devil's Advocate um, and Rushmore uh, prior to this movie. And this came out the Devil's same Devil's Advocate is... This, uh, who was she in that? She was... Christabella. I think she is not... Um, was Charlie's, she one of Pacino's? I think she was one of Pacino's girls, I think. Okay. Yeah, that seems to make sense. Um, or maybe like a friend of Charlize yeah. Theron or something. Uh, but yeah, she was, um, she's just, she's so good in this movie and, and really uh, needs more credit, uh, deserves more credit than she gets sometimes, I think. Because it's kind of tough. She's the only real woman character in the entire movie other than uh, Maximus's wife who has n- no real lines of dialogue. Um, and is only in those kind of flashbacks, uh, sort of thing that we see. But, um, and it's, if I had a nitpick to make for the movie, it's that at the same time, it makes sense given the era that they're doing this in and the type of political intrigue that's going on. Male centric. Yeah. Yeah. But it is a very male centric film and cast. So that happens. Um, and, uh, and I think, I think if you were doing this movie today, 22 years on that wouldn't necessarily be the case um it's hard to say but like at the same time it works probably end up with some female senators and some you know there'd be something female gladiators yeah there 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 would definitely be more of a split there and and i did like the inclusion of female gladiators in some of those battle scenes especially Mm -hmm. the battle of carthage because that was accurate that actually did happen um so I, I, i enjoyed that um I did capture a few clips from this movie if you want to hear any because there's some yeah. there's some good stuff in here. Um there's there's one I'm hoping you captured that if you if you didn't I'll, I'll mention it after. Okay. So, first one I'm going to play is actually from uh, a very a small role. Um it's Cicero, which is Maximus's like kind of almost like a page in medieval times or assistant or something like that and he's only in a couple of scenes, but he's played by the wonderful Tommy Flanagan. Um, who I love and everything I ever see him in, and he has a very distinct look because he has a Glasgow smile. He was uh, mugged, mm-hmm. and his scars are still left. But he has, and it's a, it's a, one of the few lines he has in the movie, and I just always liked it because it's just a very poignant line. This is when Maximus has come back from his meeting with Marcus Aurelius, and he's just he's got the weight of what Marcus Aurelius had just told him, like that he wants him to take over as uh, essentially as the Caesar. Um, and he's carrying this weight and he's talking to Cicero. And this this shows you how much he trusts Cicero to talk to him about this stuff at all. And he asks him, like, you know, do you find it hard sometimes to do your duty? And his response is, Sometimes I do what I want to do. The rest of the time, I do what I have to. Like, it's such a simple line, but there's something compelling about it for me i really really liked that yeah uh let's see oh this was um more Derek jacoby uh talking about trust marcus aurelius trusted you 
daughter trusts you. I will trust you. He's just got a great voice. He really does. I love I love hearing that. And that is a good line. He's like, look, he because he doesn't fully believe in Maximus. You know, the Senator Gracchus just because Gracchus is part of Rome and Maximus isn't, and he knows that all of this, but at the same time, he's just like, all right, these people that I believe in and trust, trust you. So I will extend you that same thing. Yeah. It's like if, if the, if the Caesar and his daughter can trust you, then who am I to not? Exactly. It's, it's kind of that. I'll trust you until like, uh, this was one from early on in the movie. This is the character of, and we didn't mention him, but Quintus, um, played by Thomas Arana, uh, who's the other general. Um, and this is right before the fight in Germania in the opening of the movie. People should know when they're conquered. I was like, yeah, well, that, that's a that's a good line from him that makes sense. Um, the, before the follow up line is even just as good. Oh like, yeah, would you know? Would I know? Yeah, exactly. Like, it's oh, I love that. One thing I I haven't mentioned yet, and I, before I play some more clips, I want to mention is the cinematography for this film and the cinematographer who was um, where I got his name here, John Matheson, was a director of photography. I loved how the opening of the movie, it's that kind of dawn blue hue going on and how all those scenes outside of Rome are kind of set in that sort of a a light. And then like a dreaming death seed. Yeah, and it's it, everything's got that blue hint uh to it and then when they get to Rome and everything that's taking place in Rome all the colors become very warm and it's all yellows and golds and sepia tones. And it's, and, and it follows on from that line that Maximus has where he talks about Rome being the light and how the rest of the world is dark. And it was just one of those things. It's a subtle thing that you don't, you all, you almost don't realize you're seeing it, but like everything that takes place in Rome is these bright or not bright, but warm tones and the things taking place outside of that tend to be cooler, bluer tones. And I just thought that was really cool. And I'm, yeah, I wanted to make sure and mention that. And John Matheson, who um, has done a bunch of uh, Ridley Scott films and a lot of work himself, I thought his cinematography was great in this. Um, I thought between the lighting stuff and then some of the things they would do in the action sequences with changing the shutter angles and giving a more kind of uh, stroby staccato feel to some things... Um, I thought really worked because it made that action feel like you can make action feel more frenetic without having to do shaky cam. And they were able to use like locked off cameras or smoother camera movements, but give you that frenetic feel to some of those fights too. It didn't have to be done handheld. So, and like he went on to be the cinematographer on Logan. So, you know, he, he knows his stuff. That movie is beautiful. Um, so yeah, I wanted to mention that. Uh, and that was that, that wonderful line. People should know when they're conquered. (laughs) Sure thing, Quintus. Sure thing. Um, I got one from Jaiman Hansu and it's right at the end of the movie, uh, when he's burying the little, uh, little figurines and he just says, I will see you again, but not yet. I love that. 
Mm-hmm. He's just, oh, Jaiman Hansu is just a charismatic dude. Like, you see him in something, and you're just glued to him. For me, anyway. I am. It's just something about him. His smile always feels so genuine. When he's when his character has to smile in a scene, it just feels like he's genuinely smiling, and I love that. Yep. Um, this was... So these will be two clips back-to-back, and this was... Uh, Commodus and Maximus talking to each other. So I'll play the first one, then I'll play the second one. Do you think I'm afraid? It's a good delivery. And then Maximus comes right back with, I think you've been afraid all your life. Like, that's good. Because... And it's accurate. It's accurate, and the re- then the reaction from Joaquin Phoenix to that line is perfect, because he, he has that look of, like, you're not wrong, and I hate that you're not wrong about that. It's so good. Uh, let's see. What are some other ones? Oh, I got, I got a few Richard Harris clips. These are good ones. Um, I just love the way he says this. You can only whisper it. Whisper it. It's just, it's just good. I, just, I liked that. Whisper the whisper. Yeah. Yep. Uh, when he's talking to uh, Lucilla, which... That was a cool introduction where he comes into the tent and he sees her kind of spying on everything. Like she's not allowed to be out mingling and his look towards her when he says, you know, and it's a, it's the product of the time where he's like, ah, if only you'd been born a man, the Caesar you would have made. And it's that he favors her over Commodus, but unfortunately the politics of the time, there's no way he could uh, have her succeed him. Um, but then when she comes over, I just love this line. Let us pretend that you are a loving daughter and I am a good father. It's like, ah, see, that's that, that grandfatherly, that fatherly thing that you just, you just want to like Richard Harris in this role. Yeah. And it sounds like a lot of regret in that too. Absolutely. Uh, which dovetails into this one where he's talking to Commodus. You are false as a son. Is my failure as a father. Like there's a that's a man that regrets things that happened in his life. And he's looking back at it, realizing he should have made some decisions differently. And taking responsibility. Mm-hmm. And then this was this is a great one because this is the Caesar. This is the Emperor of Rome talking to his general as he gets onto his horse. So much for the glory of Rome. So much for the glory of Rome. As they're finishing up a battle, they've just won a major battle. And that's because the shot right before that is him looking over the battle and this feel. There's that shot of him where he kind of, um, he's overseeing the battle and you can see the weight lifting off of his shoulders like, okay, this is done finally. And I just love that line, the so much for the glory of Rome. Um, Okay, I got a few more though. We're not done yet. We got some Proximo. Um this isn't Proximo. This is the guy that was selling stuff to Proximo, um, who mm-hmm. that actor, I have to remember uh, his he was name. In, uh, he was in, uh, I had to look it up. He was in The Mummy with yes. Brendan Fraser. He was the hangman. Yes. And, and he I, is, it, that bugged me for about 20 minutes until I finally looked it up. Omid Jal, uh, Jalili, I believe is how it's pronounced, yep. uh, is the slave trader. He's awesome. He's just great. And I just love this when they're, they're walking over and Proximo's asking him uh, about the slaves. 
Some are good for fighting, others for dying. You need both, I think. Like, that's the guy that knows his job right there. That's somebody who's been doing this trading thing for a long time. I love you need both, I think. And he's just, again, he's got that great voice. Um, mm -hmm. And then uh, a couple, couple Proximo lines. Um, this is just a, this is like a, put this in a movie trailer. Gladiators, I salute you. I salute you. That's, that's that moment. That's that thing where he like, he almost wishes he was going out there to fight. He doesn't. Like he knows better and he doesn't want to go out there, but he almost wishes he could be the one doing it. He misses it. Yes. Uh, and then... We mortals are but shadows and dust. I just like that. That's just a cool, like, kind of... Just phrase. We mortals are but shadows and dust. Which they used again. They actually used that exact shot again at the end when he's dying. When he, uh, Which I thought was kind of funny. Like, literally, you can see the people in the background of that shot. So it, it sort of... It works out because they've got the body double and the people walking up to him, and then they cut to a shot of him looking up at Maximus walking up the ramp. <laughs> it's like, wait a minute, I've seen this one already. You'll notice it when you it, when and if you ever watch it again, you'll see that part. Um, and then a few Maximus lines because he had a lot. Now there weren't. This was an odd movie to clip like sound clips for because a lot of stuff is very protracted, and they're kind of longer bits, and it's sort of not. They're not snappy. Uh, one-liners or anything like that, but there's some good stuff here. Um, this one. At my signal, unleash hell. I mean, come on. Straight to the point. Yep, that's good. Um, I love this when he's talking to the Felix Guard, uh, the Felix Regiment, when they're in the woods. And um, this is before he talks about being in Elysium and, you know, if you if you find yourself riding in Greenfield, you're in Elysium and you're already dead, which was great. But before that was this one. What we do in life echoes in eternity. I like that. I like that a lot. Um, pardon me. Uh, when he is talking to Connie Nielsen and she asks him, if he basically asked him if he hates her, something something along those lines. Um, I think he had said something to do with her comfort with lying. And uh, I loved this response from him. I think you have a talent for survival. Because yep. she definitely has a talent for survival. Um, and her character really knew how to do that. Like, had she had the morality of her brother, her ruthlessness could have known no bounds. Like she was a good person, but she had the capability to be a horrendously bad person had she fallen uh, like her brother did. Yep. Um, I love this. Just the, this just sounds mean. The frost. Sometimes yeah. it makes the blade stick. When the guy goes to pull yeah. his sword. <laughs> uh, yeah. Oh, I would have crapped my pants. <laughs> exactly. Here you are. You're trying to pull a sword, and the guy says that to you as he's holding a sword by the blade that he's ready to kill you with. Yep, I'd have pooped myself there for sure. And I got one more, and this this is a real good one. 
I knew a man who once said death smiles at us all. All a man can do is smile back. That's another one of those just really like just good phrases. There's just something about that that like you want to quote. And so I really like that. Now, were, were any of those the, the clip you were hoping I would have gotten? No, there's there's a, a moment where it's I don't remember if it's the first battle that Commodus is watching or the second battle. But Maximus does something and it's a quick cut to, to, to Commodus and he almost spikes the camera as he goes. Ooh, oh, yeah. Like, yeah. Like <laughs> that one was good. Like, ooh, look at that. Ooh, fancy guy. Um, I also liked the uh, the moment where he's like, my history is a little bit rusty, but shouldn't the barbarians have lost? <laughs> like, hey, yep. Yeah. And all that stuff in the Colosseum was great because they had to recreate digitally a lot of the Colosseum um, to, oh, yeah. to, to work with stuff. And it's just like this was the first time you really ever saw on screen what the Colosseum would have looked like or could have looked like at that time. Um, and the, that that shot where they're coming out for the, for the Battle of Carthage and it's that 360 pan and you see the whole thing. That's all CG in the background. It doesn't look like it. That's really well done. Mm-hmm. Um, and just imagining being in that place and seeing that and realizing they don't have amplification and that guy where where his spot was, you could hear him all throughout the Coliseum. The dude with the huge eyebrows. Yep, the the fake hair. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Big um, guy. And uh but he just his voice would uh, the acoustics were such that you could hear him all throughout there without amplification, which is just crazy to think about that they had that 2000 plus years ago. Um, yeah. The, the only other thought I had of the Coliseum was it, I had also made me chuckle because as before the event is starting, you have that chariot or this wagon that's kind of going around the inside and people are handing out loaves of bread to the, oh, to yeah. the populace. Yep. And all I could think of was they didn't have t-shirt cannons <laughs> like that. It, like even at games back then, they're like that's like the equivalent of of a t shirt cannon handing bread out and throwing bread up into the crowd. If it, it really is, if this were a parody movie, they would have had a little like bread trebuchet, a little catapult, mm-hmm. and they would have been launching it yeah. into the into the crowd instead of just tossing it. But yeah, I love. Mm-hmm. It was just so cool. They they made Rome feel like a real place. It never, even though it's you know mostly sound stages, right, and like all of that and. Yeah, the, the, the streets were all kind of sand-covered, which they really would have had paver stones um, throughout Rome and all. But, it, like, Rome felt real in here. Uh, I love shots where you see, like, just a random dude juggling on the street and next to a street vendor or just outside of a cafe or something like that. And just all of the, the, the background and the stuff that was going on made it feel like a real place. And the Colosseum was no different because of exactly that, to have the, the concession cart wandering around just chucking bread into the crowd. Mm-hmm. So this this is a really well-made, fun, interesting epic of a movie. It is. It, um, you know, it, again, it's not historically accurate, much like a lot of your historical dramas aren't. Braveheart. Um, isn't they all are going to take some drama, some dramatic license because you're trying to tell a good story. What you want is it to at least kind of sort of feel like, for instance, in this movie, they they do the thumbs up, thumbs down thing. 
And historical accuracy would be that if you're going to let the gladiators live, it's thumbs down. Um, and at the time, thumbs up would have been like a, a sword move, like kill them, whereas thumbs down is sort of lay down your arms, leave them alone. But the filmmakers were like, uh, yeah, but that's just going to confuse people. They're not going to – it's too much to try and explain that in the movie, so just make it be something that they're going to cat, they're going to latch on to immediately. They don't have to think about it. So at the, especially at that time, made more sense to do it that way. So like I, things like that I give um, – you know, I know that Marcus Aurelius was a real emperor, but it's this isn't exactly what he was like. Or Commodus was a real emperor, but this isn't exactly what he was like. However, the the real Commodus was similar in some ways. Um, he did he did definitely lead to a lot of the downfall of the Western Roman Empire, which this movie you know kind of kind of shows you. So it's certainly worth watching. I'm glad you finally got to see it. Um, yeah, me too. It's it's always kind of been on the the back burner for movies. Like there were times I could have watched it and then I just watched something else. <laughs> well, now you've watched it, so uh you know, you can always watch it again sometime if you feel like it, but it's 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 now no longer the oh man, that's that movie I should watch that people tell me is really good. Now you can say, "Yeah, I've seen that. It's good. I liked it." Yeah. And I'm so. glad I did. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for being here. Uh this is a ton of fun. Now, you got some uh, some things that you do um, on the internet. Uh, you want to tell people where they can find that, what it is. Yeah, sure. I uh, do a podcast on Sunday mornings at 8.30 a.m. Central Time. Uh, it's called Two Nerds, One Quest. Uh, we put it into a podcast. Uh, do it on twitch.tv slash Tom M. Norm. Uh, that's where we do that. Uh, I write books. I have a couple books out there on Amazon. Uh, and I dawdle with uh making dungeons and dragons battle maps for virtual tabletops nice. i do that a little bit as well um you can find pretty much all my stuff over at shaffencreative.com so that's s c h a f f e n creative.com and all my links and podcasts and stuff are there uh yeah that's, that's awesome. my life shaffencreative.com definitely check that out uh if you do uh if you need maps, which I'll have to look at some of those because I'm always up for looking for new uh, new bat- battle maps. So that's great. Um, so this show uh, records live Sunday nights, 8 p.m. Eastern time at twitch.tv slash TV's Travis. Uh, comes out in podcast form on Wednesdays, anywhere you get your podcasts. Or you can go to uh, tvstravis.com is the easiest way to find it. All your links there uh, for getting it in Apple Podcasts, Google, your favorite podcatcher. There's also uh, a spot you can go if you want to buy merchandise or if you want to support this show uh, through Patreon. You can go through the website or patreon.com slash W-Y-H-S, as little as a dollar an episode, um, and you can uh, support the show, get stuff new uh, earlier than most people do, as well as um, new and exclusive content that will be coming out uh, at some point, um, and uh, Discord access, stuff that only patrons can get on Discord. So that... uh, that as well. But that is uh, where you can find me. So uh, next week I am watching, uh, what was it? oh, The Quick and the Dead. We're going to do another Russell Crowe movie. Um, Tim Tim Wilson, a.k.a. J. Dimes, is coming back. I haven't talked to him uh, on the show for a little over, it's been almost two years now. He uh, He's never seen The Quick and the Dead, and I love Sam Raimi movies, and this is 
one of his that I have seen, I haven't seen for a while, but I have seen it. And uh, you got your uh, Gene Hackman, Russell Crowe, Sharon Stone, um, all sorts of good people in this fun Western from Sam Raimi. So I can't wait for that. That's going to be a lot of fun. That's next week. Um, and uh, we're coming up on the holiday season, so i got to find some uh, holiday movies, some good uh, good ones for that. And we're closing in on 200 episodes. This is 192. So we're only eight episodes away from the big number 200. So stay tuned for that. i got working on some, uh, some things I want to try and do for that episode. So, Norm, thank you for being here. This was super fun. I'm glad we finally worked it out and we got you here. And you're welcome back anytime. We'll find another movie that you haven't seen or maybe something that you love you can bring to me that I haven't seen before. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it was a blast. I'll, I'll, I'll keep my eyes open and I'll keep throwing suggestions your way. Excellent. Until next week and The Quick and the Dead, just remember to enjoy your movies and be excellent to each other. There's been weight you haven't seen. Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>